This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 143, Perspective. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Looking at things from different perspectives is the fair way to approach a situation, but it's more than that. It's about compiling all the relevant information, including information that challenges our way of seeing the world. This week we discuss circumspection, the skill of viewing things from other points of view, and then we practice it on subjects from last week, poor unappreciated Captain Bly, the enablers of Mars Hill, and the true spirit of cooperation in search of truth. Let's start with what I've been preaching. I don't read from the King James Version of the Bible very often these days, but I will call your attention to the KJV's version of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. I love that word circumspectly. It is a word derived from Latin roots, and I'm a big word geek, if you haven't figured that out already. Circum refers to a circle, like you would talk about the circumference of a circle all the way around. And spect obviously has to do with vision, being able to see things. You might wear glasses and call them spectacles. Or a great firework spectacle is something that's worth your time to go and investigate. Circumspect, then, is the ability to see things from all around. And in the context of Ephesians chapter 5, it's talking about being able to correctly assess the world, especially the evil of the world. The CSB reads this way in verse number 15 and following. Pay careful attention, then, to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Pay attention to how you live. Be aware of life's difficulties. We all remember trying to get away with something when mom is not paying very much attention or seems not to be paying attention, and she seems to know anyway, and we wonder how, and she says, I have eyes in the back of my head. That's what circumspection is, being aware of your surroundings, being able to read the signs, being able to put pieces together and detect things ahead of time, including things that may not immediately come to our direct vision. In an evil world, this is a skill that is critically important. Paul is telling us here in Ephesians that evil comes at us from every direction. Sometimes it comes straight at us. Sometimes it is baring its teeth as the roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and we see it right in front of us. But it is not always that way. Sometimes the wolf comes to us in sheep's clothing. Sometimes there's a side attack or a false attack, and then we're attacked from behind. Ephesians chapter 5 gives us some good tools to help us cope with these situations so that we are able to, by viewing things from other perspectives, by getting other points of view, by changing our way of looking at the world, make ourselves prepared for the onset of evil because the evil is there and the evil will be attacking us. Backing up to verse number 13, for instance, everything exposed by the light is made visible for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The light of Jesus doesn't do us a whole lot of good if we remain in bed with our eyes closed. So therefore, be awake. Pay attention to the world. Romans chapter 13, Paul says similar things for us there. The proverb writer talks about the one who is lazy and and a sluggard. He just rolls from one side of the bed to the other, not paying attention to anything, a little rest, a little sleep, a little closing the eyes. And before too long, his entire world is in a shambles. 
That can happen to us also if we're not careful. Surely the first step in being circumspect is having our eyes open in the first place. Ephesians also talks about efficiency. Verse number 16 reads, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Other versions have redeeming the time here. Every single one of us has 168 hours to work with in a given week. We have to use them in a proper way, a way that will promote our spiritual cause and defeat the cause of evil in our lives. Be engaged, be connected, be involved in the process. He talks about this also, comparing or contrasting the work of drunkenness, the work of alcohol, to the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians. And don't be drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. This singing connects us to one another and connects us to our spiritual cause. It's contrasted with the idea of being drunken, which is completely selfish in its approach. Don't get engaged in your own self-service. Get engaged in the service of others. Get engaged in spiritual work. By doing all of these things, by looking at the world circumspectly, by seeing every point of view, by properly assessing where the danger is going to be coming from or may be coming from, we are putting ourselves in position to more effectively combat it. And while we're being circumspect, by the way, let's not forget to be introspective also. Sometimes the greatest evil out there is the evil that's inside of us. Look inside of ourselves, lest we also be tempted. Make sure that we are in every way, from every angle, prepared for the onslaught that the devil is going to bring to us. That day is going to come. The only question is whether we're going to be ready for it. This is what I've been reading. Mutiny on the Bounty by Charles Nordoff and James Norman Hall, which we discussed last week in brief, was written in 1931, a fictionalized version of the events back in the 1780s and 90s. In 1935, Hollywood got its hands on it and decided to make a major motion picture out of it, starring Charles Lawton and Clark Gable. Now, for the benefit of those who are younger than my generation, let me explain something. If you cast a motion picture and on one side is Charles Lawton and on the other side is Clark Gable, there's not a whole lot of question who the good guy and the bad guy are going to be. Clark Gable is always, always the good guy. And so when people were to show up at the movie theater and see that Clark Gable is playing the part of Fletcher Christian, they are already predisposed to take the side of the mutineers. Very popular American position to take, still remains popular. And in reality, it's difficult to imagine how a movie could possibly be made in the modern day where Captain Bly is portrayed as the good guy. Nevertheless, I realized after reading the prelude to this book, basically from the events of the mutiny all the way up to 1931, the overwhelming support from the public was on the side of Captain Bly. Part of that, of course, is because Captain Bly made his way back to England and told his story. Fletcher Christian did not go back to England and tell his story. It's always easier to believe the guy that you see versus the guy who's not there to defend himself. There's certainly a point to be made there. But it's also a factor of the 18th century mentality among Englishmen. The idea that law and order had to be preserved, especially in outer reaches of the empire, where there was no direct impact from the mother country, from the king or queen. 
Order has to be maintained, and that means the captain's word is law. There are no exceptions to that. You can't afford to have any exceptions to that. If one person is going to maintain order over dozens of others, his law has to be unquestioned. And when questions come up, chaos ensues. They gave the American colonists around this period in history a couple of inches of rope, and look what happened there. I don't say this to make light of abuse or the bullying that we talked about last week. I'm not suggesting that the captain was right and the mutineers were wrong. I'm suggesting that it's more complicated than simply taking one side or taking another side. Because our very strong tendency in these situations is to side with the people that we relate to, the people who we understand, the people who look like us. If you are an authoritarian Britisher in the 18th century, you're going to side with Captain Bly. If you are an American who loves freedom and, quite frankly, likes the idea of living the rest of their life in the South Seas, you're naturally going to side with Fletcher Christian. Neither side is right or wrong. It's just a different perspective on things. We have to find a way to get over our predispositions, our biases, our selfishness, and learn how to assess our role honestly. Jealousy has no place. Selfishness has no place. When we focus on what is going on with us, when we focus on what is best for us, we become blinded to the viewpoints of others, we become blinded to the needs of others, and disaster inevitably ensues. James writes in James chapter 3 and verse number 13 and following, Who among you is wise in understanding? By his good conduct he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace." Now, the interesting thing about a passage like this in the context of the bounty is that the mutineers will look at this and condemn the captain, and the captain will look at this and condemn the mutineers, because each one, whether they are self-diagnosed or not, is pursuing his own agenda and is blind to the needs of others. All the captain can see is selfish, willful people who will not submit to authority. And all the mutineers can see is a captain who cares nothing about the welfare of those who are placed in his charge and who seems to be exploiting them for his own personal benefit. Very little good can come from this sort of judging. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, so don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And then praise will come to each one from God. It's very difficult for us to understand the intentions of other people's hearts. And so therefore, in most situations, just don't even make the effort. Show up and do the best work that you can. If you are in one role, you serve in that role. If you're in another role, you serve in that role. Wherever you happen to be, serve as best you can. And try to be sympathetic with people who are in other positions. It's difficult all the way around. There are no easy tasks in the Lord's kingdom. There's no easy tasks in life here on earth as far as that goes. But with God's help and with some help from our brothers and sisters in Christ, if it can be arranged, we can get through this together. We can get to where we are headed. This is what I've been hearing. 
I refer you again to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, the podcast, limited run podcast that was put together by Christianity Today. Fascinating look into the megachurch that dominated the religious scene in Seattle about eight to ten years ago. The Bible uses the word shepherd not only to refer to Jesus Christ himself, but also to those that are in charge of the people of God in a location. And the people of themselves, of course, by extension, are called sheep. Sheep is a word that we don't typically use in a positive way. It means following blindly. It means swallowing every bit of craziness and nonsense that's handed to us simply because somebody told us it was going to be okay. And when we look at Mars Hill and we look at the people who followed after Mark Driscoll and all the craziness that in hindsight was clearly designed to lift up the profile of Mark Driscoll, enhance his own personal brand and bottom line, oftentimes at the immediate and direct expense of others, we wonder how in the world people could go along with that. How could they act like sheep? But I found myself thinking, in hindsight, exactly how unusual is that kind of attitude? I'm not suggesting that people who were caught up in this nonsense or any other nonsense as far as that goes are blameless, that they could not have been expected to act any better than they did. I'm not saying that. At the same time, though, is it not pretty much natural for us as human beings to follow along with this? You could easily argue this is an extreme example of this phenomenon, and I think I'd probably agree with that, but it's hardly unusual. Go back to the nation of Israel, for instance. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, the people are wanting a king. Samuel's leadership isn't good enough. We want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles for us. We want somebody that we can look to. That's who humans crave. They want somebody out in front that looks tall and strong. And the things that we value in such people tend to be on the shallow side, as was the case with Saul. We go on to see in 1 Samuel 10, verses 23 and 24, that even Samuel himself is caught up in this. Look at this one that God has chosen for you. Look how tall he is. Surely he's going to be a great king. A person this tall is bound to be a good king. Well, you and I scoff at that. We think that's just insane. But at the same time, how many of our presidents have been extraordinarily tall? It's a natural thing for us to want to physically, literally look up to somebody. We all know that that isn't important in the big picture. And yet we like the good-looking one. We like the well-spoken one. We like the person who stands upright and speaks strongly and connotes confidence and authority and power. These things aren't necessarily conducive to leadership, even in a government role, even in a carnal role. And certainly that's not the kind of person that God is looking for among his people. David certainly was an imposing and impressive figure in his own right, but not when he was a little kid out there taking care of his father's sheep, not considered worthy enough to even be in the interview when the great man Samuel comes in to look for a king. But he was a man after God's own heart. That's who God truly values. And when we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, and we look at the work that is given to shepherds in local churches, you see this kind of character. You see this selflessness and humility and meekness. That's true strength as far as God is concerned. Oftentimes, even 
in the Lord's church in the modern day, having read all these passages, having looked at the horror stories in the Bible and in our own lives of people who amass power for the sake of having power, people who project strength so that they themselves will be lifted up and that others will be crushed in their wake. We see this kind of story play out over and over again. And yet we still go to these people for leadership. When we see a flaw, like for instance, anger or vulgarity or whatever it happens to be, no, that's not ideal. But at the same time, he's our guy and we trust him. We have decided to follow after him. And once that decision is made, it can be very difficult to back away from that decision. It's easier for us to simply follow the person who is in charge, the person that we have decided to trust, than hold that person accountable. We can be thankful that Jesus is completely inscrutable. We don't have to worry about whether he is worthy of our trust, worthy of our acceptance, worthy of following after him wherever he happens to go. We don't need to hold Jesus accountable. He is eminently accountable. But those who lead in his place, those ones who take spiritual responsibility, whether it is fathers, whether it is church elders, preachers, whoever it happens to be, including podcasters, such people need to be held accountable. Such people need to have their feet held to the fire so that they can be proved to be worthy of the role that they have assumed for themselves or has been given to them. There's a world of difference between following after Jesus and following after the people who claim to be leading In the name of Jesus. I'm all in favor of imitating someone who is imitating Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. We need to be doing that. We need people going out in front of us, showing the way, being shepherds in his place. Peter mentions how he is a shepherd of the people of God in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And that other shepherds, submitting always to the chief shepherd, need to be serving in that role, serving as Christ's representative here on earth. But it's a flawed representation. Peter himself falls short any number of times as he tries to serve God, including after becoming an apostle. And we're going to fall short too. We may be sheep, but we are not lemmings. Simply because we are being led in a particular direction, that doesn't mean we go that way without thinking about it. We need to be responsible for our own selves. Yes, submit to leadership. Yes, obey those who have the rule over us, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. But that's not talking about doctrinal matters. That's not saying if they say it's okay to do this, that, or something else, even though the Bible says that's not true, well, I guess we'll go ahead and go after them because they're the leaders. We can't afford to do that. Too much is at stake for us. This is what I've been playing We're going back to the Mystery House this week, and I am having visions of playing this game with my family. We haven't done it in a while. We approach the game and we approach life from four different perspectives. I'm the husband, the father. I'm on one side of the table. I'm looking at a situation from a particular perspective. And across from me, perhaps, is my wife. She's looking at things from a similar but yet different perspective as the mother, as the wife. And one of my daughters is married now. She is looking at the world through young married eyes. My other daughter is not. She's looking through the young single eyes. They're different. They're similar in many aspects, of course. We all are the same family. We all share a great deal of history together. It's reasonable to assume that we're going to look at a situation more or less the same way. But there are going to be all kinds of exceptions to that. And the 
fun of Mystery House and cooperative games in general is that you benefit from different points of view. As I mentioned last week in this space, Mystery House consists of a box that has doors cut in on all four sides and slits in the top where cards are slipped through to obscure the vision of someone so they can't see all the way through. And as a result of that, because the cards are placed in a certain way, because everybody has a different position on the table, everybody looks at this situation, the same situation, from a different viewpoint and takes away a different set of information, a different set of facts. Nobody's right, nobody's wrong. But we together have all the information that we need. So if we can pool our resources, if we can pool our skills, if we can pool our experience, our wisdom, in theory at least, we'll be able to work through this. But as we touched on last week, if there is one person who is driving the bus, if one person is insisting on having his way or her way, if there is no cooperation going on, then you're at the mercy of the skills of that one individual person. And the chances of your success go way, way down. This is a very simple, basic lesson that we need to incorporate into local churches. If we are to succeed in this joint mission, and we are all in this together after all, if we are to succeed, we need to be depending on one another. And it's very easy for us to assume that people in certain positions, people with certain experience or whatever, that they have the right view. And then we just need to listen to what they have to say. And it's certainly easy for people in that position to assume that. But there is a certain stubbornness. There is a certain sense of caution that is in every one of us that can push us away from authority, away from good advice. But it also can intercede with better advice, with better wisdom. And sometimes it comes from the unlikeliest of sources. So what we need to do as people, regardless of what side of the table we're sitting on, We need to respect what the other people bring to the table, as it were. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, Paul writes, The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. He goes on to say in verse 19, Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. Yes, we publicly refute those that are in sin, those who are found out to be doing wrong. No one is above rebuke. No one's above reproach. But there is a certain built-in reverence, a built-in respect that goes toward those who are older, those who have more experience. That makes sense. This is a growth process. This is learning to appreciate what someone else is able to offer. In this case, experience. Someone who's in their 20s and 30s simply has not seen everything that the older people have seen, and vice versa, by the way. But It's reasonable to assume that those who have lived many, many years in the Lord's service have a certain amount of wisdom that has come because of that. doesn't always work that way, of course, but it tends to work that way, and that's a good thing. Likewise, those who are younger, it's very easy to dismiss them. If you are the one who has experienced, if you are the one who has the wisdom, or at least ought to have the wisdom, those who have survived being a younger person. It's easy to look down your nose at someone who is younger, someone who is less experienced. Well, when I was there, I knew how to be quiet. I knew how to sit down and shut up. Well, that may or may not be the case. That may be some rose-colored glasses looking back at our past. But in any case, Paul writes to Timothy in 
The same book, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 12, don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. We can set ourselves up for a good reputation if we choose to do so. Timothy is to realize there is a certain amount of skepticism. There's a certain amount of distance that older people are going to put between themselves and younger people. And Paul says, Timothy, don't allow that to happen any more than is absolutely necessary. Don't give them a cause. Be a good example. And likewise, older people need to prove themselves to be relevant, worth listening to for this younger generation that is oftentimes inclined to dismiss what they have to say. Each one values what the other one brings. Each one has an appreciation for the other one's point of view, for the other one's perspective. Men and women in the church and in families work very similarly. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 reads, In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some would disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. And he goes on to explain a little bit about how that works practically speaking, presenting yourself in a holy and responsible and respectful way. Verse number 7, we see the other side. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Women need to value what men bring, the leadership, the strength, the courage that is necessary to be a leader, to be responsible, to be the one who has souls in his charge. Men, on the other hand, need to be understanding about what their wives offer. Living in an understanding way is not necessarily in our wheelhouse, is it, fellas? But we work at it. We value what our wives, what women in general, offer to us. We appreciate that we can't do this all on our own, and we don't want to do it all on our own. If we can appreciate the value that each one provides, then we set ourselves up more for success. I have come to realize after 28 or so years of marriage that my wife's perspective on life in general, on our family, on our children, is sometimes different than mine. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. She may be a little bit more right, or I may be a little bit more right in any given circumstance, but it is valuable to have a different way of looking at things. That way we can compare, contrast, come to a more informed decision. The same thing works in local churches. When those who are younger, those who are older, those who are male, female, experienced, inexperienced, wherever they happen to be in the broad spectrum, and the broader the better, we're able to come together as a body with different perspectives on life, different perspectives on the Bible, different perspectives on application of spiritual values, always submitting to Jesus, of course, always submitting to the Word of God in the Bible, but realizing that there may be different ways to skin a cat, if I can be crude about it. There may be different points of view. There may be different approaches, and none is necessarily less valuable than the other. The best way for us to find the ideal way to proceed is by looking from all points of view and cooperating as we pursue our common goal. After all, we're all trying to get to the same objective. At least in theory, that's what it is. We're all trying to build one another up in the body of Christ. Paul writes about that, of course, in Ephesians chapter 4. If we could work together toward that common goal we have a lot better chance of reaching it. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, 
and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.